Well, it's good to be with you again if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do if you would turn them to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 26. Let me pray for us that God may come and teach us this evening. Pray with me, would you? Father, again, we come to you and we ask, Lord, as we open your word now as your people, that your spirit would do a miraculous work now. Lord, we don't want these words to be just any words to us. We want them to have the desired effect that you desire upon us. And so we ask now, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that our eyes and ears would be opened, that our hearts would understand, that our minds would comprehend, and that we would believe, Lord, in what you say to us tonight. Lord, press these words upon our hearts this evening. In Christ's good name, we pray all these things. Amen. Let's listen to God's word now, beginning in Matthew chapter 16. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. It's perfect in every way, and it's for you and me tonight. And so listen to it. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. We take a few minutes this evening to take a look at this passage in Matthew, uh, commonly known as the encounter that Jesus has with the rich uh, young ruler. And We're going to first examine who this man was briefly because it's important to know some things generally about who this man is approaching Jesus, about what he's asking Jesus. Then we're going to look at how Jesus interacts with him. He challenges the man, then he begins to answer his question, and then we see the man's response. And then Jesus will turn and teach his disciples about Uh, this man's encounter. So let's look first at who this man is. Verse 16, 
A man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now this account is also captured in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18. And so when we take those two passages and we put it with this passage here in Matthew, we begin to get a picture of who this man was. First of all, we see from those three accounts that this is a wealthy man. We'll see that in just a few moments here in our text. He was wealthy. This, in the ancient world, wealth or the accumulation of wealth and possessions was seen commonly in the culture as God's blessing. And that's partly true, isn't it? God gives all things to people. Yet we know that it's not always the case. But here it was seen that way, that if you were wealthy, that you must be blessed by God. You must be a good person because why else would God bless you if you weren't good? So he's wealthy. He has money. He has possessions. We also see that he's young. He has the better part, if you will, of his life ahead of him. Now we don't know how young he was, but the text says he was young. So he's wealthy. He has all that the world could offer him. He's going to have a good life. He's young. He has years looking ahead of him. We also see that he's some type of ruler or some type of person of importance. Possibly, the commentators think, a ruler in the local synagogue. Certainly Jewish. He held some kind of stature or authority. We see also that he was eager to find an answer. He seemingly is interested in the things of God. In the other two passages, they indicate that his, his coming to Jesus wasn't just a casual bumping into Jesus, that he was, he was rushing with a kind of uh, angst almost to find out the answer to this question that had been gnawing at his soul for some time. We'll see the question in just a minute. This wasn't just a random bumping into Jesus. He was coming with purpose to get an answer to this question. So it seems like he's interested. Then we see that he's coming to the right source. He's speaking to the right person. Now, he doesn't know who Jesus truly is. There's no indication that he understands or believes the true identity of who he's speaking to. Yet you and I can see, and the disciples believed, that Jesus was the very Son of the living God, the Messiah. And so he was coming to him to answer this question. He seems to understand his need also, doesn't he? We see, at least in our text, he says that he's still lacking something. He understands that apart from all he's done, there's still something missing. And he's not sure what it is exactly. He understands he has some kind of need. And he comes and asks Jesus, we see there in the very opening verse, the most important question that could ever be asked by anyone, ever. What must I do to have eternal life? 
Have you ever had anyone ask you that? This man comes and asks Jesus the most important question ever. So he's wealthy, he's young. He is a a ruler, he has authority, he's eager. He's coming to the right source and he recognizes his need. Outwardly, this man seems to be the perfect candidate for conversion, doesn't he? You couldn't ask for anything better. He's coming, the mission field is coming right to Jesus. And so the, the scene is set up here that this is perfect. And the disciples perhaps are thinking after all of this, that they're going to see this man enter into the kingdom of God. At least that's the direction you see that Jesus is painting this picture. Well, let's look at how Jesus responds. Verse 17, before he even begins to answer the question that the man is asking, he does two things. First, he challenges the man's understanding of what goodness is. Did you see that in the text? Why do you ask me about what is good? Or the other uh, texts say, why do you call me good? Because he approaches Jesus and he calls him a good teacher. He says, "Why why do you talk to me about what is good? There is only one who is good, Jesus says, meaning God. That's his his point here. You see, the man's understanding of what goodness was was this. Goodness was something that was earned by keeping the law. You see what the man asked him? Did you notice it in the question? What must I do? You see, in the the mindset of the man, that's that's where eternal life was. Being a good person and gaining eternal life was about something that you did. Well, in his mind, we'll see he He had done everything. And so he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? He believed that the standard of goodness was his ability to keep the law. And in this case, the law is summarized here by the Ten Commandments. But Jesus shows him something different, doesn't he? Jesus shows him that the true standard of goodness is not him, It's God. Only God is good. He's the standard. Jesus is pointing the man and his disciples and us to a person who is good. Not to some action or some work that must be performed, but to a person, to God himself. Goodness must be found outside of ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. And not just outside of ourselves, but in a person outside of ourselves. That's the first thing that Jesus is showing him in this answer. Secondly, he's showing him as an outflow of that first point, he's showing him that he's not good. Right? He's showing the man that it's only God who's good, And when you stand in light of God's goodness, what does that show about you and I? What should have that shown this man? Well, it should have shown him that he wasn't good at all. 
when we measure ourselves, our supposed goodness, in light of each other, we might look okay. Let me make a confession to you at this point in the message. I I believe that I am better than you. And you believe that you're better than the person sitting next to you. Now, you won't say that, but you believe it probably. You see, we, we want the standard of goodness to be ourselves or to be the people around us because then we can be good, right? But we see that when we come face to face with the one who is truly good, suddenly our goodness doesn't look so good after all, does it? In fact, our goodness is wickedness. Now, I don't consider myself a wicked person, and I don't think that you do either. But in light of God's goodness, in light of God as the standard of goodness, listen, you and I are wicked. Listen to the Apostle Paul writing in Ephesians 2. This is how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2 about how we are when we come face to face with God's goodness. Listen to what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, listen, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Whose wrath? God's wrath. This is the terrible picture that Paul paints of the nature of all humanity in light of God's goodness, in light of his perfection that we were by nature children of wrath. Do you know that? Outside of Christ, we are children of wrath. Well, as we step back just for a second, let's make, let's make an observation here as part of application for this point before we hear what Jesus says to the man about his question. This is important for us because people naturally still live under this same misconception. People still believe they're good. You believe it, I believe it, your neighbor believes it. Because we use ourselves or others as our standard. Or if we believe in God, if we come to church, if we're believers in Christ, perhaps... Goodness means to us doing good things. Jesus reminds us all here that God's perfection and holiness is the only standard. And when we view ourselves in light of that standard, we come face to face with our own true wickedness and rebellion. And we need to be reminded of that. And it should drive us to Christ. Well, let's look back at our text now. Jesus now, after challenging the man about what goodness is, 
now begins to properly answer his question. What will Jesus say to the man about how to have eternal life? Look at the end of verse 17. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the man answers, which ones? And then Jesus lists off some of the commandments. And then in verse 20, the man responds this way, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Well, this is surprising in two ways. Jesus' response is surprising to us. It should be surprising to us in two ways. First, he doesn't respond the way you would expect. How did Jesus respond when the man asked him how to earn eternal life? We would expect Jesus to respond maybe something like this. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. It's a gift given to those who will believe on me based upon my soon-to-come death on the cross. And if you will trust in my work and my coming death in me, my blood will cover over you and you will be saved. We would perhaps would expect something like that, and that would be a true response. But instead, how does Jesus seemingly respond? Jesus tells the person who is trusting in his own works to do what? Keep on working. He tells the man, you know how to get eternal life. Obey. Obey, and you're in the kingdom of heaven. Keep working. Well, Jesus is not proposing a salvation by works. He's trying to lead the man somewhere. But at least at the outset, that seems odd to tell the man who thinks that you can work to be a good person to keep on working. Try harder, Jesus says. And then the second surprise, Jesus starts with the second half of the Ten Commandments. I probably would have started with the first commandment. Now we'll get to that because Jesus does work his way back around to the first commandment. But he jumps immediately to the second half of the Ten Commandments, you notice. Not the first four. Jesus leaves those out, at least for a moment. He also leaves out the last commandment to covet, which we'll come back in a moment. And then he summarizes all of that by saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a summary of the last half of the Ten Commandments. And then look at the man's response. He says, all of these I have kept. I imagine perhaps that the man breathed a a sigh of relief when Jesus told him that all he had to do was keep the commandments. And the man was like, oh, thank goodness. I've done all those. I'm good. But he, he still seemed to lack something in his heart, though, doesn't he? He says, but what do I still lack? Now, amazingly, Jesus doesn't even respond to the fact that this man believes that he's kept all of the commandments perfectly. Well, this man's response shows us that he has a very superficial understanding of the requirements and the nature of God's law. His understanding is just on the surface. First, he asked him, which ones, which commandments should I keep? Well, certainly this man knew 
although it seems he doesn't grasp that he must keep all of them. You want to work your way to heaven? You want to be good and do good things to earn God's favor? Great. Just be perfect. Just never make one mistake ever in your life. It's that simple. Never make one mistake. Be perfect. Listen to Paul as he quotes Deuteronomy 27. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. You see, Paul understands as the, New Testament, as the Old Testament understands, that when you use God's law as a means to earn his favor for eternal life, you're going to fail because you will not keep it perfectly. And that's the requirement. Be perfect. The man seems confused. Which commandments? All of them. All of the time. He also does not understand that being righteous before God is more than just keeping outward acts of behavior. See, here's the root of the issue for the man. Being righteous before God is more than just keeping the outward acts of behavior. It's about being righteous internally in your heart. The man believes he's kept the commandments because on the surface he has kept them. He probably hasn't murdered anyone. He probably hasn't committed adultery. He's honored his father and mother. On the surface, he's done those things. What he doesn't know is, is that there's more to righteousness than just being good on the outside. Just going through the motions. Jesus had previously said in Matthew 5, a few chapters back from where we are on the Sermon on the Mount, that breaking the commandments internally was equal to breaking the commandments externally. You remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 27? You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus tells us, that this was always the point of the law and the commandments to show how impossible it is to earn your way to heaven and to point us to a redeemer. It was never meant to be a means of which we could earn our place in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' comments here are meant to demonstrate the impossibility of becoming righteous by works and to the absolute necessity of a heart change. True righteousness and goodness resulting in eternal life comes from a changed heart. It doesn't come from merely outward acts of good behavior. And this is a message that those of us inside the church need to hear drastically and desperately. We need to hear this. Maybe 
you are here and you've been to church your entire life and you've done all of these good things, much like this rich young ruler. Maybe you've come to church. Maybe you pray. Maybe you read the Bible. Maybe you give sacrificially to the church and you serve and you do all of the good things that you should do. And those are good things. Those are great things, wonderful, glorious things. But maybe you're here doing those things just on the outside. Believing in your mind and heart that when you meet God face to face, that all of these good things that you've done will earn you a place in his kingdom. Well, that's just what this man believed. When the fact is, when we meet God face to face, your good works and my good works and all the good works of all the people in the world will be laid before him and they'll look like dirty, stinking trash to him. That's what the scripture says, that our good works are as dirty rags if we're trying to use them as currency to buy the kingdom of God, to buy eternal life. That's what this man was doing. Righteousness requires that our hearts change. And that's something that we'll see in a second that this man didn't have. He looked good from the outside, but on the inside he was unchanged. Look at Jesus' response now in verse 21 and 22 as he brings this conversation to a close. If you want to be perfect, Jesus says, you, you, you've done almost everything right, he's saying kind of to the man, except you just have one thing left, which is not true. But he says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. You see, Jesus is showing the man what he really worships. He's showing the man, uh, you do the outward things on the surface, but internally, you don't really love me. You don't worship me. You worship something else. Jesus is not setting down a principle here for living a life of poverty. And he's not really making comments on owning wealth, although in this passage, you could draw some things from that. That's not the point of the passage, I don't believe. The bigger point is he's showing the man what he really worships. And for this man, it was his stuff. It was his wealth because he had a lot of it. The man's wealth and possessions had become a god to him. You see, he was in constant violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The other passage is in, in the Gospels tell us that Jesus is very compassionate to this man. That he, he looks on this man with pity and compassion and he tells him this truth. He shows him this painful yet true thing about the man's heart. God is supposed to be his greatest treasure. But for this man, it was his stuff. It was his wealth. And look at the man's response. Perhaps the saddest verse in the entire Bible. 
Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great wealth. Jesus laid before this man a choice. If you want my kingdom, you have to worship me and me alone. And this man wasn't willing to give up his wealth to gain eternal life because he had an idol. Listen to Pastor Ted Tripp as he gives a famous quote about the idols, the things that we worship. Listen to what he says. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide humans into those who worship and those who don't. Everyone worships. It's just a matter of what or whom you serve. What an amazing illustration and quote to point us to the truth of what Jesus is saying. Well, if, if this passage just stopped here, it would be very sad and depressing. The man walks away. We never hear of him again. The implication is he's lost. As we hear about the perfection of God, his goodness, our wickedness, as we see this man who, from all outward appearances, appeared to be the perfect candidate for salvation, and we see his response, he walks away. We might ask the question that the disciples ask Can anyone be saved? Salvation is impossible. Look at back at our text in verse 23 as we bring this to a close. The disciples said to him, or, and Jesus said to his disciples, it's only through difficulty that a rich man can enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished or worried, concerned, saying, who then can be saved? I mean, if this man can't be saved, there's no hope for us. That's what they're saying. And then listen to Jesus' response, verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What's the this in this passage? With man, this is impossible. What is that? What's this? This is salvation. Rescue. With man, salvation and rescue is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How is it possible? How can we overcome the idolatry and wickedness and rebellion that lies within our hearts? Well, I hope you didn't miss Jesus' gracious good news in our passage. Listen again to the good news that Jesus gives this man. Here's the way out. Go and sell your possessions and then come and follow me. This is the gospel. This is Jesus calling him to turn away from his repentance or from his idolatry. We would call repentance and to follow him. Sell all that you have. Get rid of your, idolaters, your idolatry, your idols, 
and then come and follow me. Have faith, repentance and faith. This is how the impossible becomes possible. Through the call of Jesus to have faith in his work and not our work. His record, not our record. And, and this is a call that we need to hear today, tonight. We all, at times, desire the gift more than we desire the giver. That was this man's problem. He wanted the gift. He didn't want the giver. We have our own idols. It can be anything. This man's idol was money and possessions. It doesn't have to be that for us. Don't mistake this as a story about rich people. This is a story about all of us as we wrestle with whatever it is that we wrestle with in our hearts. What is it for you? It might not be wealth and possessions. It might be other, thing, other things, relationships. It could be recognition. It could be health. It could be things within the church. For me, it's, it's ministry. That may sound like an odd thing to say from a pastor, but it's true. The idol that creeps and rests in my heart is ministry. Ministry is a good thing. It's a great thing. But it can be an idol too. When I elevate that above God himself, above worshiping him, then the good thing that he's given me has turned into a terrible thing, a thing that I now worship. How often idols can lull us into a complacency and a contentment for lesser things, causing us to give up the greater things. This man clung on to his idol, a lesser thing, and he gave up the greater thing, eternal life. We can fall into this. We do fall into this. And Jesus is calling us today, tonight. He's calling you and me to turn away from our idols and to turn back to him. That, that's the rhythm of the Christian life, isn't it? Not that you lose your salvation and gain it and then lose it and then gain it. It's that you're constantly struggling with sin, falling into sin, and then turning from it. Constantly moving back and forth, struggling, tempted, sinning, and then repenting and believing in the good news of the gospel again. The good news that your salvation doesn't rest in what you do. It rests in what Jesus has already done. We're not good, but there's one who's been good for us. And if we will trust in him and believe in him, not only will we be saved, but on that day when God calls us all to the judgment, he will look at you and I if we're in his son, Christ Jesus, and he will say, come in. Don't you want to hear that? Come in, good and faithful servant. Come into my kingdom and be with me forever. Pray with me, would you?
Father, we listen to these words that your son Jesus spoke to this man who asked the most important question ever, how can I gain eternal life? Oh, Father, this is us. Jesus is speaking to us today. He's calling us to put away our idols, to understand that there is no goodness in us. Goodness must come from outside of us, and it must come from the one who is perfectly good, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who came to this world, who wrapped himself in flesh, and who was perfect, keeping the law perfectly. From the moment of his conception to the very last breath at his death, he was perfect. And Father, Jesus then, suffering on our behalf, gave us the credit for his death. He then gave us, by faith, the perfection that he had earned. So now, Father, we can be assured that when we enter into glory at the end of our life or when you return again, we come before the Father clothed in the righteousness of, the, of his Son, the righteousness that Jesus earned by his work. We don't claim our own goodness. We reject it and claim only the righteousness of Christ by faith. Oh, then will we hear those great words of, you, of yours that we can come into your kingdom, good and faithful servant. Father, this is our prayer tonight, Lord, that we would believe on you, that we would turn away from our sins and believe in you again tonight, trusting in your righteousness and not our own. Father, may this be true of all of us. In Christ's good and gracious and holy name we pray. Amen.